Welcome to the first episode of This Human Business, a new podcast that represents the growing movement seeking to reassert the value of humanity in business. My name is Jonathan Cook. I'm a researcher who specializes in exploring the culture of commerce. In my work, I study the myths and rituals, the metaphors and emotions that drive the behavior of consumption and corporate life as well. I interview and observe consumers, and I work with people in business. And something I've noticed is that in recent years, there's been an increasing focus on what's going wrong, on the ways that businesses are failing to connect to their customers on a human level. So throughout the first season of this podcast, I'll be exploring this growing gap between human experience and business practice and seeing what we can do about it. But what does that mean? What do I mean when I talk about a business being human? What is the essence of a human enterprise? I don't just mean our ability to think logically. Our computers can do that too. I think that if I had to choose just one word to describe what people are aiming for in this new movement for human business, that word would be beautiful. So this episode considers an annual event in Lisbon, Portugal called the House of Beautiful Business. And yes, you heard that right. Beautiful business. That's a phrase that strikes many people as strange. Consider, as an example, the reaction of Scott Dawson, a designer working in the financial services industry. I'd like to find out where that is. <laughs> a beautiful business. Um, a few things come to mind. I, I, think, I think one is a, a beautiful business would be a place where um, it doesn't feel like work. In, in the way that we define work, um, it, it, the way I define work in my mind, work is not play. Work is not fun. It's called work. Um, I certainly have types of work that I do that I am fulfilled by. Um, if I work in the garden, I can step back and I can see tangible results of something that I did. That's not unpleasant. Um, if I get into, uh, and we talk forever about flow, if I get into a concept of flow, that means I'm really like in tune with the work I'm doing. If I'm solving a design problem, um, and I can work uninterrupted on that for a huge swath of time. There's something really pleasurable that comes out of out of that process, and you're not being interrupted by cons, you know, phone calls and instant messages and emails and all that. Um, there are times where where work doesn't feel like work, but they're they're somewhat rare. Mm -hmm. So so one part is on on the perspective of the the worker, um, beautiful business. I think the other is probably on the on the side of the consumer or the user, who, who that business benefits, who it's established for. Is that business operating in the best interests of who they serve? Or is it a self-serving business? And I think in a lot of cases, it's a self-serving business. And I think businesses that operate that way spend an awful lot of time and money to convince people that it's not. That therefore, the people that are using them Work is the opposite of play for Scott Dawson, and I think a lot of us feel that way. 
But that is not at all what art historian Johann Huizinga thought. He called us not homo sapiens for the thinking human, but he called us homo ludens. That means the playing people. It's at the heart of who we are, as he saw it. But for Scott, work is not play. Work is not fun, Dawson tells us. And to tell the truth, his perception of the playless dreariness of business is right in line with the opinion of most people. If we take Johann Huizinga's idea that a state of play is at the heart of what it means to be human, then Dawson's diagnosis of the state of business suggests that our very humanity is being taken away from us when we enter the business world, because our cultural expectations of work lead human experience to be systematically stripped out of business processes, as if it's some kind of contaminant. The result has been an alienation of business from the cultural wellsprings that build sustainable social connections. Quantitative instruments such as the Edelman Trust Barometer regularly report that even as we consume their products, people are deeply suspicious of the motivations of commercial corporations, even on the inside of business organizations. Corporate employee engagement is at astonishingly low levels. Almost nobody is engaged with business, even as they're employed in it. So as Dawson discusses, the problem isn't that people are lazy, that they don't want to work. Human beings actually like to do work that's meaningful to them, such as gardening, and they feel deprived when their ability to do that kind of work is taken away from them. Businesses can provide us with the chance to do, to do that kind of joyful, playful work, but in practice, they tend to strip all the fun out of our work. What's more, Dawson tells us, the linear thinking of traditional business models takes the beauty out of our consumer experiences as well. Rather than enrapturing us, businesses often enrage us. Does it have to be this way? Is ugliness an unavoidable byproduct of business? To further explore these questions, I spoke with a longtime professional associate of mine. My name is Tania Rodamelans, and uh, I'm originally from Barcelona, but I've been living in Chicago for more than 10 years now. Um, if I have to describe what I do today and how I got here, uh, probably I would have to start by telling you that I've studied journalism in Spain. Um, and then I believe what I'm doing today is a bit of a mix between my natural curiosity and my fascination for just wanting to know more about people, you know, what they do and then how they do it and why they do it. Um, so <clears throat> I guess journalism was kind of the way to get to talk to people and honestly an excuse to physically sneak in behind the scenes and learn what people actually do and why they do it. So um, I think that's what got me started in this path of uh, interviewing and, um, and you know possibly research. Now <clears throat> when I started to work at a journalism for a news station, 
um, what happened was that I would only have like a certain amount of time to talk to people and then I would have to rush back write a little bit something about my interaction uh, with the, the kind of the basic facts and you know what happened and who did what when um, then it was edited uh, and aired that same day and that was it um, so it wasn't a lot of depth at least in that part of the news reporting and sometimes I was purely reporting just what happened and basically finding out what people did but what I really really wanted was to spend more time with them and really understand, you know, what they were doing and who they were. Um, I kind of wanted to talk to other people that maybe had gone through the same experience or had done the same things, um, but that was not how um, how that world worked, um, you know, at least for me in that in that particular experience. So I would get sucked into the story and I would never be able to get any further. So it's kind of like changing channels mid-movie, you know. I, I think when I found research, particularly the kind of research that I'm doing today, uh, this qualitative research based on one-on-one -on -one interviewing, I found that it was giving me the depth and the understanding that I was looking for. That's, um, I think, what brought me into doing this kind of work. Since way back in the 1990s, I've worked with Tanya to hone a research technique called emotional immersion, which guides people to articulate the deeper sense of emotional meaning that's at work underneath the simple rationalist explanations for their behavior that businesses typically rely upon. Adapting her background in journalism, Tanya has become an expert in helping business leaders uncover the human purpose, seeing how that purpose is shared in common with their customers. Tanya has an appreciation for the human connections businesses can create. However, like Scott Dawson, she is concerned that too often businesses fail to take advantage of the opportunity. When businesses could create something beautiful, they tend to slouch into the merely functional, following the path of efficiency to create organizational cultures that are minimally viable, doing for their customers and workers the least that they can get away with. I would say that any time that the human element is not being accounted for, that's when I encounter things that I don't like or I'm not comfortable with. The human element is often you know, seen only as human interaction or interaction between humans. But I think the interactions that we have with the actual physical spaces we work in are equally important. Like, I never understood why are some of those spaces designed for visual torture? What makes us think that people would like and would you know, work better uh, when they have fluorescent lighting, beige colors all around, no visual stimulation whatsoever, no open windows to feel the breeze in your face, and no time for breaks or to go out to eat? What's the logic and the reasoning behind that ugliness? And by ugliness, I mean not just visual ugliness, but mental and emotional ugliness. You know, there's no reason why you shouldn't be enjoying a workspace. Uh, the same way, you know, there's no reason why you should be forced to be in a place with no windows. Why is that okay? Why is that something that we all seem to be now accustomed to in a lot of our workspaces? They don't 
treat people like people. The human element has been, you know, sometimes removed from uh, some of our workspaces that just kind of seem to be designed to accommodate only what's inside our heads while completely ignoring the body that just so happens to be hosting the company's intellectual property and self-assets. Um, I think most companies treat people uh, as a means to an end. And I think when you do that, um, you're basically viewing the people who work for you not as a human being. It, it kind of seems odd to me that in the name of economic efficiencies, you ignore the humanity of your own people in the hopes to appeal to other human beings that are supposed to care enough about you to buy your products repeatedly over time. That's just, that's just crazy. Tanya's decades of experience working with marketers and managers have led her to the insight that the physical beauty of a corporation's designed environment and of the products that they design is an outgrowth of the recognition of the humanity of the people that they sell to and the people that they employ. Now, the contrary is also true. So when a business loses touch with the human meaning at the core of its work, an ugliness creeps into everything that it does. So far, the case for beautiful business isn't looking very good. But beauty, as the old saying tells us, is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty transcends objective measurements and formulas of aesthetic worth. It's subjective. It's human. It's easy to dismiss business as irredeemable, but I fear that when people accept the idea that commerce is inherently corrupted and inhuman, they provide an excuse for low standards. When people believe that business cannot be beautiful, they become indifferent to their work. That's the kind of attitude that leads to the epidemic of distrust and disengagement that currently afflicts the business world. Business can do better. So instead of settling for the vision of the minimally viable, let's listen to the arguments that can be made for the proposition that business doesn't have to be as ugly as it often is. Let's meet Tim. So my name is Tim Leberecht. Um I am the, uh, the the founder and CEO of the Business Romantic Society, which is a company that I uh, founded um, last year, actually incorporated last year, together with my partner Till Grush. And uh, our mission is to humanize business by making it more beautiful in the age of machines. So, and then I also um, I write. Uh, I really enjoy speaking and giving talks about the topic of the humanization of work and uh, beautiful business. Um, I wrote a book called The Business Romantic that came out in 2015. And professionally, my, my home turf is, is marketing and communications. I'm a really passionate storyteller and marketer. If you haven't read The Business Romantic, I encourage you to go out and pick yourself up a copy of the book. Don't go to Kindle either. Do the romantic thing and buy a physical copy that you can hold in your hands. The book traces the roots of the current crisis of emotional disconnection in business back to the great disenchantment of the Industrial Revolution. 
It was in response to that earlier crisis that the Romantic movement was born, and Tim proposes that with the tremendous disruption resulting from Silicon Valley's reflex to automate everything that it can, we need a new Romantic movement to reinvigorate business culture with attention to the unquantifiable aspects of the human experience. The House of Beautiful Business takes this abstract goal and gives it a physical reality in the form of a week-long intimate salon during which residents from all over the world gather to trade insights about the global movement to balance technological developments in business with psychological and cultural countermeasures. Tim recognizes the apparent contradiction in the phrase beautiful business as expressed by Tanya and Scott, but he encourages business people to explore the mystery at the heart of that conflict. So beautiful business is, is, is a term we chose because it, it has this inherent tension, very much like business and romantic, the title of my book as well. Um, and actually just today I spoke with a woman, Ann Scott, uh, a coach and facilitator who, uh, who is also an attendee of the house. And she actually told me something that I hadn't known, which is that um, business, the, the word business comes from the British, the old British uh, word that actually means anxiety. <laughs> um, among other things, you know, being occupied with something, but not in a necessarily positive way, just being really anxious about something. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then if you look at the Portuguese and the Spanish language, I'm um, sorry, I'm just really uh, obsessed with uh, semantics and, and language and meaning of, of language. But uh, negocio, which is the, the Spanish term for, for business, actually means the opposite of pleasure. So it's kind of like a, a negation. You know? the, the absence of pleasure is, is business. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting. I, didn't, I hadn't known this before. Um, and, and I think that, that ties to the, the, the common understanding of business where a lot of people say, well, it's not pleasure. It's not fun. It's not personal. It's business, right? And you compartmentalize these two areas into different buckets. Here's your personal life. Here's sort of fulfillment and meaning. And there is business. And business is about numbers, logic, rationality, um, and, and all these other things. And, and I think for the, since, you know, since the birth of scientific rationality and management theory, which is very much shaped by, by scientific rationality and the belief in logic and reasoning, uh, we've really um, shut out or excluded those parts of our humanity that uh, that were more in the pleasure camp and in the meaning camp. And um, and that's a real pity because we spend so much time at work, 70, 75% of our waking hours. So why did we divorce? Why do we divorce really important, profound aspects of our humanity, of our thriving uh, and striving in life from that. So a beautiful business is a business that is human in a sense that it creates a space for all aspects of our being human. By the way, not just the positive ones, which is why I believe that uh, the notion of happiness or purpose alone is not enough. Um, it's also the negative emotions, whatever that might be. That's a questionable term maybe to begin with. But the whole continuum of emotions, anger, grief, sorrow, melancholia, um, all of that has a place in business. And by acknowledging that, that, that the bottom of the iceberg that often makes or breaks our projects, um, the emotions, the dreams and the desires and creating a space for that, either visibly or invisibly, uh, tacitly, 
I think that is a hallmark of a beautiful business. Uh, and then I think the other, um, the other piece of a beautiful business is, is just an alignment between purpose and experience. And then thirdly, I think it's it's a number. It's a it's a matter of. I mean, maybe that's the rubric above all of that. It's the it's the culture, of course. It's being values driven, and and having the guts, the courage as a leader, as an organization, not just to comply with the regime of efficiency, which is of course very often the default mode, especially in 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 uh, you know in in dire or more challenging times, but a beautiful business always has the guts to say okay, these are the numbers, this is what we would do if we simply followed the rules of efficiency, but our culture, our values, our purpose uh, is so important for us that in this case, we, we compromise, we decide against efficiency, we go with culture, we go with quality, we go with humanity. And, and that's a decision that every leader, every organization has to make, either at a small scale or at a larger scale, I believe, I mean, probably several times every day. And what we want to do with the House of Beautiful Business is 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 to create a space where where leaders are experiencing a different way of doing business and feeling um, their way through um, this experience that encourages them to act in a way when they have to make these decisions that they're not just defaulting towards efficiency, but that they're seeing the the benefits and the yeah the beauty um, of actually, uh, sticking with your values and creating experiences that, that, that create meaning and that are not just about the bottom line, but really understand business as such a great, maybe the most powerful vehicle for, for bringing meaning to the world and projecting yourself and your, your, um, your impact and, uh, into the marketplace as in, in the, you know, world at large. As Tim says, business may be the most powerful social organization that exists in our time, transcending even the power of nations. If we can't make these organizations more human and more beautiful, a frightening future awaits us all. Another staff member at the House of Beautiful Business, Jamie Stetton, points out that aligning organizational purpose isn't enough to restore balance to business. There's a contradiction in the practice of business. The cultivation of powerful commercial organizations is only made possible through the contribution of exceptional individuals. So even as there is a collective esprit de corps, business cultures also recognize the value of people who go their own way. And before Jamie joined the House of Beautiful Business, she cultivated her own creative skills as an individual, and like many others, has found that the most useful skills she brings to her work in business come from other fields. I definitely do not have a background in business or communications or marketing. I'm much more of a student of the liberal arts and the humanities, you know, literature, film, writing. It's the perspective it gives me. It's very much a sort of outsider perspective when it comes to uh, like business consulting communication, I guess, from a sort of like traditional academic professional version of that. Um, but it's clear that it also really uh, works very well with with those perspectives too. But I definitely think I come, I, I come at all the issues that we deal with from a little bit of a different angle and, and 
generally, I think it's an advantage for me personally and for us as a team to a certain degree to have that kind of other other way of looking at things. Maybe wherever I would be, I'd have a little bit of an in, well, outsider-insider perspective, mostly because, I don't know, I think I've really carved a sort of unique path through life and maybe haven't done so much uh, traditional, professional kind of linear path taking, I think. Um, even in university, I sort of, I, I don't know, I created my own major. There was always, I don't know, some other route I wanted to take. Uh, so I feel like within the house of beautiful business or, you know, outside of it, that maybe that will always be, you know, sort of my angle. Jamie's idiosyncratic path is echoed in the rhythm of events at the House of Beautiful Business. The house is a place to live and work in prolonged contact with other residents. Residents don't simply sit in an audience there listening to experts provide insights. They interact in week-long conversations and collaborations. And even in the quiet moments, there's something important going on. I think things happen rather than uh, you like taking in information or or content like you you maybe you as the the guest of of the house um, in an, a down moment in a non-program moment maybe you're more uh, maybe more empowered to make things happen or you can start conversations it's more like output rather than input um, and uh, yeah, and I don't know. And and I guess the point is you don't really know what could happen in those moments, whereas in a workshop or a talk or whatever, I mean, you know, there are some variables and some things we don't, you know, like we don't know what will happen or the outcome of those kinds of things. But in the moments that are not programmed, they're, they're even more and greater unknowns and therefore more potential for, I don't know, larger, more exciting question marks and exclamation points and, and I don't know, maybe more fruitful conversations even, or just more spontaneous conversations. Jamie, who worked on an alternative travel magazine early in her career, emphasizes the importance of physical presence at the House of Beautiful Business. These ideas of travel and physical presence will come up again and again in this podcast. Somehow, they're at the core of what it means for a person and a business to be human. Unlike at conferences like TED, where the main events are informative and entertaining lectures, the greatest value of the house of beautiful business comes from actually being there, interacting with other residents in person. I think there's just sort of untold I don't know, untold magic that happens when people are together in the same space that really cannot happen in any other way. You know, I, I work remotely a lot, so I'm definitely someone who appreciates the ability to get stuff done, you know, remotely over distance with computers, the phone, whatever, online internet, the, all that stuff is amazing. And it's a huge tool and you can get a lot of things done in a sort of, you know, quantitative fashion and even things of quality. I'm not saying you, you miss out on quality when you work remotely, but there are also some things or conversations or feelings that just 
can't happen unless people are in the same place at the same time. And I don't know if it's a question of making eye contact or allowing natural silences to happen or just, I don't know, there's just some magic to being in the same place at the same time. And I think no matter how far technology goes and no matter how easy it is to do stuff remotely and to work on projects and to bring things to life. I mean, I made the magazine with my partner primarily remotely we worked together over a great distance and it worked and it was great but there were some parts of the process that were just infinitely easier and a whole lot more uh fruitful what working on them together in the same place at the same time and yeah i think no matter what you know being together in real life can yield things that that really you know wouldn't be able to uh come to fruition otherwise the experience that Jamie, Tim, their colleagues and contributors provide at the House of Beautiful Business stands in stark contrast with the dominant way of thinking about businesses today. Jamie and Tim both emphasize the value of moments of serendipity, interactions that cannot be predicted. Conventional business practice regards unpredictability as a source of risk, however, it's hoped that other businesses will be the ones to have to experience disruption. The strategic consultant David Altschul has encountered this conventional approach to business over the years, and he makes some sharp observations about its consequences. People are running businesses and particularly people on the marketing side uh, would love to believe that it's some kind of science some kind of social science. And if you're in that science realm, then what you're trying to do is pro solve problems. If the brand is a solution to its consumer's problem and you're the scientist or the engineer, you know, looking to solve it, then you expect that success will come from simply providing a better solution or the same solution at a lower cost or something like that. And that's true in a way, but you can't build a relationship around solving somebody's problem. And so brands fall all over themselves to try to define you know, finer and finer slicings of consumers' problems and then solve those problems for their consumers and then look around uh, a little forlorn that people don't love them for it. But the reality, of course, is that, that people don't love you for solving their problems. They may be grateful in the moment, um, but the next time somebody comes along with a better solution for the same money or a similar solution for less money, they'll get the business the next time. So the relationship piece depends on uh, a different point of view. We'll find out more about David in the next episode, which focuses on the craft of storytelling in business. For now, let's pay attention to what he has to say about the impact of treating business like a science, rather than like a work of beauty, as Tim and Jamie suggest. Science, like traditional business, seeks reliable process, leading to interchangeable results. In commerce, however, this same attitude leads toward commodification, in which one product has exactly the same value 
as another, regardless of who makes it. Commodification smothers passion in both consumers and producers. Commodification kills brands. No one loves a commodity, and no one has a strong attachment to the producers of commodities either. One source is as good as another. Business isn't just a well-regulated process, though. It's a human behavior involving human beings, both as producers and consumers. The trouble is that when businesses begin to treat their products as commodities, they often begin to treat their employees and customers in the same way. In the science metaphor, clearly the customers are the lab rats. Or, you know, if you want to be more politically correct, the experimental subjects. You're trying to figure out what you need to do and say to get them to run through the maze in the right way and ultimately press the button for your product. Once again, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with looking at marketing through the lens of science, but you can't pretend that you have a human relationship with those customers. In fact, if you did have a relationship with those customers, you wouldn't be a good scientist because you would have lost your objectivity. As disengaging as it is, this cold, passionless, scientific approach to business isn't the worst manifestation of dehumanized business. Even more heartless is the metaphor of business as war. In the war metaphor, the only relationship that has any real juice, any real dynamic energy, is the relationship between you and your competition. It's, I get that it's an antagonistic relationship, but it's a real relationship. In the war metaphor, the customers are the markers of the territory that you're battling over. You count them up at the end to see who won. So that's perfectly legitimate business objective, but you can't pretend that you have a human relationship with them. You're just trying to win them, like they were property. The movement for a truly human-centered vision of business is seeking to establish a new metaphor of business. If we genuinely care about the people who meet in acts of commerce, business can't be a science and it can't be waged as a war. But what can the new metaphor be? Well, there are many contenders. The one that the House of Beautiful Business suggests is business as a work of art. Someone else I met there in Lisbon last year might have a different idea. I'm Reinhardt. I come from uh, Salzburg, and I've been working in the tourism and hospitality industry my whole life. So after university, I started working for a destination management company in a very small village. And uh, the job practically is to create products for visitors and also to do tourism marketing. Reinhard was a patient fellow traveler with me and a group of about 20 other residents of the House of Beautiful Business. As we trekked up and down the cobbled streets of Lisbon last November, following in the footsteps of Portugal's poet of business, Fernando Pessoa. It was a long walk. It was a good walk. 
and we arrived at a palace, an honest-to-goodness palace, at the end. What brought me there is that uh, together with a friend from university, we were organizing a, a conference in Salzburg. Yeah. And the topic was uh, new business models. The popular, uh, the, 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 the audience was uh, the people who run businesses around Salzburg and everything, small and medium-sized businesses. And one of the speakers uh, we were invited was Tim Leberecht. And that's how uh, I learned about him and about uh, the ideas he has and also about the event. And that's what brought me there. Mm -hmm. I had uh, no expectations at all. I uh, just wanted to, I uh, thought I'd go there and i wait and see what comes uh, to me. I liked a lot the, the setup, how it is delivered, the, the stages they uh, developed that people can come together. It's a mixture of uh, uh, yeah, living in a house and also the conference at uh, the big conference location. So that's what I liked a lot. Um, a second thing was that it is different kind of people I met. Usually when I go to conferences, I meet people and experts about tourism. I meet people and experts about the digital technology. And now uh, in, in Lisbon, I was surrounded with um, a variety of cultures, a variety of personalities, and also a variety of expertise in terms of soft skills mm -hmm. and uh, artists and um, people who are uh, changing their life and how they are doing it. When I hear Reinhardt describe the house of beautiful business in this way, it seems to me that he's using a new kind of metaphor, the metaphor of business as a pilgrimage. It's apt for Reinhard, given that he works in the business of tourism. The idea of business as a pilgrimage isn't new, though. In fact, it's as old as the practice of commerce itself. In ancient Greece and Rome, the god of commerce was also the god of travelers, named Hermes in Greece, Mercury in Rome. Now, that's because the first businessmen were international traders who crossed borders, bringing goods from here to there, a highly controversial act at the time. In fact, the word commerce is simply a Latin word that means with mercury. It's a big idea Reinhard has introduced us to, a story we will return to before the end of the podcast. But for now, let it remind us that the roots of business are anything but rational or mechanical. Business has grown in sacred ground. Reinhard talks about the practical benefits of business as a pilgrimage as well. When we personally participate in business, trekking to the special locations where it takes place, we don't just make an exchange. We go through a change ourselves in the process, and we meet other people who are going through their own versions of transformation along the way. The thing about a pilgrimage is that it's purposeful. To start out, you have to know where you're going. 
Now, when I sat down with Nina Kruschwitz, a researcher from the United States who helps businesses with, with strategy and insights and edits the Journal of Beautiful Business, she explained to me the importance of the kind of destination that was offered in Lisbon, a house of beautiful business. My name is Nina Kruschwitz, and I live in Ipswich, Massachusetts in the States. And this is my first House of Beautiful Business experience, and I love it, <laughs> and I hope there are more. Um, yeah, when I first saw, I think it was a press release or an announcement that uh, Martin Reeves at BCG sent out, what really snagged my attention was simply the juxtaposition of beautiful and business. I mean, I'd never seen those two words before. Um, yeah, it's such an inherent contradiction, <laughs> at least in my experience, um, that I felt like I needed to come and see how those two things uh, live together. And if the tension between the two concepts or realities could be resolved, you know, like um, in musical terms, like resolved to a higher octave or something. And um, also the use of the word house, that was also intriguing. Um, it's not as warm as home, but there's still something um, generous and inviting about going to the house. You know, it's a shelter. It's a safe structure where something new can take shape. If business is a pilgrimage, then it's significant that the destination provided for us in Lisbon was not a hotel or a convention center or a corporate meeting room. We came together to meet in a house. The message could not have been more clear. Business is personal. It's about more than just money or data or infrastructure. All of that is important, but the purpose of gathering all of that together to make a business is to bring human beings together. Nina told me this. Yeah, I think that when a company, just like a person, is more conscious and aware of what its true purpose is, the better. Um, the more inspiring it is, the more grounding it is, and the more effective you can be. Um, for the most part, you know, the point of business now, no matter, <laughs> no matter how you dress it up, it's basically about growth and money. You know, it's activity driven by money, which... Um, yeah, which in a way just seems so limited and sad and small. You know, really, it's kind of tawdry. So, so no, I don't think of most business as beautiful. It's like business isn't able to be beautiful because it's so hampered by the systems in which it's embedded and um, is reinforcing. It's kind of, um, I don't know, it's really awkward and uncomfortable and inefficient and hard. It's like working against yourself, you know, it's like trying to swim with your legs tied together or something. It's, um, you know, you can barely take advantage of the medium that you're in because you're not free to experience it, to play in it, to work with the power it offers you. And basically, you know, business is taking place in the medium of humanity, um, of a, a shared collective human endeavor, which is still only barely conscious of itself. 
there are a lot of creative in, um, aspects to what people are doing and and ways of looking at things which I think have some liberation built into them. They're, they're little glimmers of possibility all around. The um, I think the thing that we have more in common here in the house seems to be um, a shift of um, priorities and focus and perspective. You know, most most people here seem to take for granted the the uniqueness and loveliness and importance of being human, and they want to elevate that rather than just um, subsume it for the sake of money or efficiency. So, so it's like a big experimental playground of people coming together and talking about what matters and what works, which, um, you know, that can surely spark some change. There's that idea again. Play. If we are, as Johann Huizinga taught, homo ludens, if playing is at the heart of humanity and business is a human experience, then it follows that in order to be sustainably successful, business needs to learn to play. Christian Aloma, the founder and CEO of Threadline Strategies, hinted at this possibility when I spoke to him recently. Anyone can come out and produce a product. And that product, you know, if there's nothing else out on the market and you're the only one that provides, you know, X widget, then yeah, you're probably going to get some great sales. A lot of great companies are built on products. But when you get into, you know, just on a real base basis, just competition and there's options and alternatives. Um, and when you get into what I'm, you know, I think is like today's society where there are so many options and, and it's, you know, everything's at the touch of our fingers and knowing whether one is technically better than the other is at the touch of our fingers. You build a brands by layering or providing the opportunity for consumers to find meaning or make meaning or to see the meaning in your product more than others. And that to me is where you have a brand rather than just a product. What's interesting to me about what Christian had to say here is that there is something authentically playful to the cultural practice of business. When we see children play, we watch them take ordinary objects and transform them through acts of shared imagination into other objects. Grains of sand become a castle. Sticks become magic wands. Christian describes the same kind of thing happening in business, a layering of meaning into the products that they sell, using playful imagination in collaboration between corporations and consumers to make objects that would otherwise be mere commodities into something special, something enchanted. I will introduce you to Christian more formally in the next episode of this podcast. Right now, I just want to point out that this metaphor of business as play might be something more than just a human gloss on top of a cold machine. What if play is essential to the proper functioning of business in the first place? Reinhard Lanner, my fellow pilgrim from the tourism industry, suggested as much to me when we spoke. The role of serendipity. Many realities we have today are 
realities which have not been planned that way by the ones who invented something. They were they tried to solve a problem and uh, found out something else. Or sometimes they tried to solve uh, a problem a special way and then they went for a walk or had a shower and saw something going on there and that gave them the answer to solve their problem. If business were just a practical problem-solving affair, then we could simply use algorithms to get us to the solutions that we need. But Reinhardt reminds us that it's something more than that. Sometimes when we're faced with a difficult business problem, we need to walk away and get out of the professional environment. We need to enter into the playful realm of serendipity, where through mysterious processes that we don't understand, we find answers in the places where we least expect them. Reinhardt shows us that the metaphors of business as play and business as pilgrimage don't have to be in conflict. And that's the wonderful thing about metaphors. They stretch our minds to new possibilities that linear thinking won't allow. A pilgrimage, after all, isn't really just about going through a predictable and well-planned journey to a concrete destination. It's also about the unpredictable, unplanned things that happen to us along the way, and the more abstract destination of meaning those experiences provide to us. Listening to these kinds of ideas, we leave behind the despair that business is irredeemably corrupt and inhuman. Once we start to play with metaphors of what business can be, we come up with new ways of thinking that bring us hope. Business can be better. Business can be beautiful. Now, do you remember Scott Dawson from the beginning of this episode, the designer who struggled with the idea that business could be beautiful? It's actually not that simple for him. As our conversation moved forward, he spoke in terms of hope for business, as well as fear and distrust of it. As Nina suggested, there's something powerful in the metaphor of business as a kind of home, or at least as something that feels close to home, a house. In Scott's case, a beautiful business is found in the form of a community farm just up the road from his house. I would use a really hyper-local example of community-supported agriculture, which is kind of a, a collective farm. Um, we belong to Sweetland Farm here in Trumansburg. I don't think that that farm is purely in it for the money, right? Um, they're in it to provide a service to the community. And I don't think they have to work very hard to convince people that the farm is theirs. Um, I think that... Uh, Paul is super passionate about what he does and genuinely enjoys providing a service to people. Um, it is, by every definition, non-corporate, right? So to me, that's kind of a beautiful business. A lot of the businesses that I interact around, around here seem like beautiful businesses because they genuinely seem to have empathy for and care for the people that cross their doorstep. Scott brings us back to the idea that businesses become beautiful when they build connections with people, establishing empathy for their human qualities beyond anything that data could measure. 
Christian Aloma supports this idea, making the assertion that business is personal and businesses need to take a stand. For me, I think the thing I've been thinking about, and and maybe it's nagging me in the sense of I wish, I wish more was being done, is the sense that businesses feel there's the saying it's business. It's not personal. Um, and I do think we're moving towards an economy that recognizes it is more personal. Um, and why you see more and more organizations coming out to declare what they believe in and, and what their values are and, and take stance on issues that in the past, I think organizations wouldn't touch with a 10 foot broom. Um, and, and some may say this is sort of a sign of the times and, you know, our issues around being politically correct or not. Um, I think it's an inevitable sort of movement towards recognizing that these things, you know, are part of our lives, that they, they you know, the organizations we choose to endorse and choose to sort of vote with our dollar with, they, they reflect on what we value. They reflect on what we care about. And I think... Uh, I'm seeing some organizations move there uh, and perhaps move there trepidatiously um, and perhaps make some missteps on the way. Um, And other organizations, I think, sort of very stubbornly stick to, you know, no comment. Think of how far we've come. We've gone from businesses being cold, ugly, inhuman machines to businesses recognizing our personal values and becoming a part of our lives. This may not be what most businesses are actually doing right now, but it's something they can aspire to. Businesses can become more human. With that spirit, people are once again preparing to attend the House of Beautiful Business this year. There will be many familiar faces, but also many new faces, as word of the movement for human business spreads. Tanya Rodemilans will be there. The words that were being used to describe the House of Beautiful Business um, as a concept and, and what it does, um, they were kind of like um, like trigger words for me. I mean, it was beauty, humanizing business, romantic ideals, uh, appealing to the senses, aesthetic sensibility. I'm like, yes, yes, I'm in, sign me up. Um, yeah, the, the way that I would describe what the House of Beautiful Business sounded like at the time Uh, when I decided to sign up, I thought they were kind of like the Alexander McQueen of the business world. Um, Alexander McQueen, as a clothing designer, was somebody that I would say was imaginative and provocative and very creative, a visionary, but also somebody that challenged the expectations and expanded the conventions of what fashion was supposed to be or do. So to me, it was a very similar idea. Here's a group of people that have a very similar point of view about what business should be like um, and want to do something about it to changing the status quo, or at the very least, they want to start a conversation that should ideally resonate with like-minded people that might have the power to affect change in their own organizations. So I thought, well, being there when this is happening, that that would be great. and then, of course, the opportunity to actually go to the conference in, um, in Portugal. Um, well, I don't know if I should call it a conference or an event, I guess. I don't really know exactly what it is. And that's even more exciting. Um, but it's exciting because I feel like 
um, I'm going to be swimming in creative primordial soup. Um, just like I'm going to be at the place where things are happening or being created. The great thing about the House of Beautiful Business is that it doesn't fall into the trap of all talk and no walk. The House of Beautiful Business promotes the idea of beauty in business while embodying it in practice. That's the reaction Doug Grant shared with me recently. Doug is the founder and CEO of Inqui Research and will be one of the new faces at the House of Beautiful Business this November. There's something going on there that's interesting and it was going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable in a good way. And the other thing and is just um, the imagery that has come from this event is beautiful. It's absolutely... I looked at some of these photos and some of the spaces and video, the video they produced of everyone there. And I'm just, oh my God, this is just a beautiful place with a, a really interesting energy. And it's like, wow, this is drawing some people that are, you know, it's be just interesting to spend time in that environment with people I find interesting and, and see what happens. The house of beautiful business isn't just conceptually beautiful. It's visually, physically beautiful as well. The physical beauty of Lisbon supports the feeling of romance in the event and leads Doug to hope for a creative transformation, elevating his work in the business world. It actually, um, I did this project once that has always been fond in my memory and in some ways I'm hoping to recreate it in some way. And I had actually gone to uh, Brooklyn um, about a decade ago, actually, to this place called Media Storm. And it's a place where they take a, a long-form photojournalists and they were teaching them how to make um, little videos and put into video form. Um, and somehow or other, I got accepted with my little photography portfolio. And, you know, I was working with a, like a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer was on my team. I was like, what the heck? Um, but we went off and we just spent the week telling a person's story and we we're off at Coney Island and we we're doing interviews and I was in charge of the interview part and also shooting and created a little, like a three minute film based on it. And, um, it's one of these, these memories I, I, you know, cherish forever, um, that changed me in some ways, actually influenced what I do. And I kind of have that little hope for Lisbon that it might do something like that for me. The House of Beautiful Business is a destination of a new kind of business pilgrimage in which professionals are able to temporarily escape the dreary, mechanistic pressures of efficiency in the business world to experience the possibility of a practice of commerce that enriches our hearts as well as our bank accounts. Of course, the people at the House of Beautiful Business aren't changing things overnight. The other conventional perspective of business remains, with Silicon Valley's obsession with all things algorithmic, automated, and artificial. In fact, the House of Beautiful Business is taking place at the very same time as Web Summit, a huge tech summit and in the very same city. This isn't happenstance, of course. It's by design. Tim Lebrecht explains that he and his colleagues have chosen to host their salon in the shadow of Web Summit, 
in order to make the contrast especially clear. The house is very much the opposite of Web Summit. And I say this with the greatest respect for what Web Summit, which is by now the, the world's largest technology conference has accomplished. I mean, they've done an amazing job growing this um, and really delivering on their promise, which is to be um, a great marketplace for ideas, for technology, um, um, you know, for 60,000 people attending. We're very much the opposite. We have a 250 people, we're on the other side of town. Um, we are not a marketplace, we are a living room, we are a salon, uh, we're a house where people feel at home, where um, we are trying to create a very warm mood, um, where people are willing to be vulnerable and show up uh, with themselves, where titles and business cards don't matter, uh, where business, however, still very much matters. You know, all the, the, the core challenges that CEOs and other people in business face are part of our agenda, but we try to approach them in a very different way, um, both in terms of the, the content of the conversation and the, the talks and the, the dialogues and the workshops that we, we host, but also in the, in the way we, we uh, design those experiences. So, for example, we, we do a lot of dinners, I really believe in dinners as a powerful format for, for having meaningful conversations. Um, we do 15 toast dinners where people have to share stories from business. We do even silent parties where silence or, or omitting one sense is just enhancing the overall um, experience. Uh, we do scented dinners where we play with all senses, especially um, smell. Um, we, we use play. Um, we create very immersive experiences. So we, we, we consider the term performance in business as a you know, take it very literal and look at the, what that means actually in terms of like performing and acting and, and embodying um, your vision as a leader and your purpose of an organization. Um, but we'll also really try to have a lot of fun. So there, there'll be uh, musical performances. Um, we have uh, uh, sessions where people are asked, for example, about what they really felt when they posted their Instagram, their, their oh-so-polished, <laughs> glamorous Instagram photo um, document of their life and and many 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 other things so think of it as a mix of of uh you know sleep no more so very participatory theatrical immersive experiences uh meets uh i don't know uh literature salon meets uh, a startup garage incubator so it's all of that um with various disciplines poets philosophers ceos present and hopefully with with you know, just the right degree of, of warmth and, and, and meaning and intimacy that it's needed to, to spur really interesting conversations. Conversations you may, not, you may not have anywhere else. The conversations people will be having at the House of Beautiful Business will be enabled by the special sense of place there in an event that's as much a ritual of community as a gathering of ideas. From that place, however, ripples are spreading across the globe, sparking other transformations, leading to other conversations that just may have the power to change the way that the world does business. And that's what this podcast, this human business, is all about. It's time to spread the word of the power of human business, because the evidence is all around us that the traditional mechanistic approach to commerce is broken. Businesses spend huge amounts of money promoting themselves and their products because they want to be loved. 
They want to be seen as beautiful. But most people, even people working in business, consider business to be inherently ugly. The people at the House of Beautiful Business dare to imagine a world in which this doesn't have to be true, in which businesses can learn to be more successful by being more human. Is their vision possible, or is it just a fairy tale? Well, what if it is a fairy tale? What if fairy tales were taken more seriously in business? The first episode of this podcast is now complete, but in the next episode of This Human Business, we will be considering these questions as I speak with business people who work with the power of story. Join us. Hey, by the way, I want to thank all of the people who were so kind to talk to me to help make this podcast a reality. And I also want to thank Maidan, who is the artist who created the music you're hearing now. The song is Underwater from the album For Creators. <laughs>